Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to spend uh, time uh, today with uh, one of our favorite people, Charlie Heneman, who is uh, professor of philosophy at Utah State University. He's author of several books and essays on the history of philosophy, as well as some fun stuff, such as How You Play the Game, A Philosopher Plays Minecraft. Charlie Heenman uh, quoted in the latest issue of the magazine from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University is called Liberalis. Uh, he says the Internet has been hugely transformative in the way humans uh, communicate and learn. With the invention of the printing press, Gutenberg changed the world, and we're now in Gutenberg 2.0. And so Charlie Heenman has uh, jumped in with uh, both feet. Uh, he's uh, publishing uh, chapbooks, uh, shorter ebooks on various aspects of uh, philosophy. Um, and also some fun stuff. Book on Minecraft. Uh, mm-hmm. Book on uh, Charlie. What's what's the other game you're writing about? Oh, Skyrim. Sky, yeah, Skyrim. Skyrim. I've never mm-hmm. heard of Skyrim, but uh, <laughs> you, you wrote a book on this. And I guess you got into those games because of your son. Yeah, because of my kids. My kids are much more hip than I am, of course. Uh, and so they've helped keep me informed about what's what's current and and what maybe is appropriate for my meager skill level. And so I've gotten into some games and really enjoyed them. I've always been kind of geeky, and mm. so uh, and it's pretty easy in many of these games to find the philosophy philosophical ideas that are interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about that, uh, including from Skyrim, uh, non-playing characters. I want, to, uh, right. I want to talk about that as we go along. Mm-hmm. Also, a, a cool article in Eon uh, magazine, um, it's an online site. Uh, if I teleport from Mars, does the original me get destroyed? Uh, right. A good a good question to explore. I want mm-hmm. to start with, and you write about this, um, philosophy itself. Yeah. Um, so you write on. By the way, it's uh, worth the uh, worth the the trip to this. Heenemaniac dot com is your blog. Right, right, right. H u e n e m a n n. Yes, for people who are spelling it at at home. Um, and there, there will be a quiz later. There'll be a so. quiz later. That's right. Uh, so this is, I suppose, a question mm-hmm. that philosophers probably get. It's the foundational question, a very important question. Why is philosophy worth doing? Right, right. And and I always have a kind of twofold answer to that. One is, and I think the most important one, is that the questions that philosophy is interested in are just the most basic human questions. What's important? What should a life be about? What makes a life meaningful? How should I live? What's true? What's reality like? Is there a God? Is there an afterlife? All of these really basic, uh, you know, four-in-the-morning sorts of questions. And so if you're interested in those questions, you can find— well, I don't know if you'll—I was about to say you'll find your answers in philosophy. Uh, in a way, you'll just find too many answers in philosophy, <laughs> but you'll find all the roads explored and and uh, probably pick up some ideas uh, of your own along the way. Mm-hmm. So just the intrinsic nature is good. Then the second answer that I give is that philosophy, because it wrestles with such complicated questions— it makes the mind more uh, flexible, more agile, right? And and you can carry that kind of skill set into thinking about other stuff as well. So I think that you become a better problem solver in many areas just by the kind of workout that philosophy gives you. Mm. Do you find yourself uh, having to uh, emphasize the latter, the the more practical aspects in well, today's world? We do that. We do when we tell students, "Hey, philosophy would be a great, you know, minor or second major or something like that." We do uh, emphasize those practical skills, but then at the same time, we say, look, if that's the only thing pulling you into philosophy is you want to have a quick mind, uh, you're, you're probably going to burn out sooner rather than later. You've got to have some investment in the basic questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, uh, it, give a, a credit to Janelle Hyatt writing in Liberalis. Uh, mm-hmm. She interviewed you, a fine article. Um, you, you say that um, there's a couple of audiences for these uh, chapbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, these... I, I, have trouble yeah. <laughs> wrapping my mind around. This is an e-chat book, right? So, yeah, yeah. But, but chat book in general is a shorter book. Yeah, right? so what it means is if it were in print, it would be something like 20 to 30 pages. So a, a lengthy magazine article, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not, not really quite a book. Uh, and so, you know, you can read it in an hour or two, something like that. Yeah. that that's what it's meant to be. You get it for 99 cents on Amazon. Exactly right. Um, so you're not getting rich off this, but you, I'm you not. wanted to make this accessible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, Amazon has to cover their costs, so I can't give them away for free. And uh, and it makes for a nice kind of splendid package. And plus, it probably gives me enough money to buy a coffee uh, every week or something like that. And that's nice. Mm. <laughs> uh, so you say the two audiences are the casual but educated reader uh, who, who wants to, you know, do a shallower dive or a, mm-hmm. or a, uh, spend less time on right. reading about Nietzsche or Hegel or, or whatever. The other is your former students. 
Right. Who and uh, and the article quotes a, a one of your former students, Justin Hall, who says, mm-hmm. "Now that I'm not in academia anymore, my brain starts starving to death." Yeah, I've heard that from so many students who uh, don't. Re- they say, "I don't realize how good it was in college because I had these teachers, I had these books I was reading, I had these other students, I was getting in all these conversations all the time." You go off to work, and work might be very wonderful and stimulating, but it's very hard to kind of find that social situation where you can talk about Marxism or something like that. Um, and so students do say they want to go back to college or at least have that kind of experience again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I'm hoping that my little books might give them a little bit of that stimulation. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me as I was reading, uh, that gave me some hope reading uh, Justin's comment there. Some people, you know, want to wipe the dust of academia off their, <laughs> off right, their shoes yeah. and just proceed with life and make money or whatever. Right, right. Um, others, you know, have this hunger throughout their lives. We hope that they're more of the... Of they, those. they do. And so much of our culture is quick sound bites, and you don't really get to take the time to, you know, really explore the depth of an issue. I mean, I have to say public radio is an exception. Uh, there you do find longer treatments of stories and you get into some of the more complicated aspects and so on. Um, but, you know, in popular culture at large, there isn't a lot of opportunity for that, sadly. Yeah. And it seems like um, in today's political discourse, that seems to be Boy, the, yeah, yeah. the trend. Uh, President yeah. Trump famously said, I love the uneducated. That seems to be the, that was a high, yeah. higher demographic for him. You know, right. he, he, embr- he embraced. Yeah, political discourse through tweets is probably not the, the, the way to nourish the mind, I would say. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about uh, Gutenberg in this article, mm. uh, that, that uh, Gutenberg changed the world. We're now in Gutenberg 2.0. Is yeah. Gutenberg 2.0, the Internet world, is, is, are there forces there that are changing us in bad ways then? Well, it, it, Gutenberg provided a challenge because suddenly there were – well, I guess throughout history there, was, there have always been more books than anybody could read. But uh, with Gutenberg, information just became a flood. I mean – books were just being churned out and no one could keep on top of it. And so there were all these efforts to try to try to kind of hold it all together. What do you do if you're an educated person and there's more books than you can read? How do you kind of stay abreast of everything? And so that was actually the genesis of uh, what we now know as encyclopedias, right? The books that you can just turn to to get the basic facts. Well, now we have kind of Wikipedia and all the other wonderful sources of the Internet. And the, the problem that Gutenberg caused is even greater now. There's so much information and disinformation that we uh, struggle to try to sort out true from false and to sort out what's really important from what's uh, trivial or an illusion or something like that. So uh, I I do think there's a really sharp need for, uh, you might say, information manuals or sort of guides to living in the information age uh, where you can uh, put together a reasonable view of the world and a sane view of the world uh, and not just drown in all the information that's out there. So it seems like uh, ed- education, that framework is even more needed. Right. Uh, but we're living in, a, in an age where there is a division and, and uh, one camp. Right. Whereas as a badge of honor, you know, we're, we're not the intelligentsia. We're not right. the elites. We're, we're regular folk. Yeah, and they're they're. Oh, I'm sorry. That, that, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That that is kind of the problem when you have a group of people that really don't want discussion. They they just want to have a shouting match. And I have to say that there's there's some of that on the left as well. Uh, I mean, I assumed you were kind of drifting towards the alt right, but but there's a lot of people that are tired of discussion and just want some sort of uh, uh, result that they can get maybe through violence or just through some kind of social movement, um, and. That is the temptation. When you when you see so much information and disinformation out there, you can understand why somebody might come to the conclusion that you can kind of uh, I've got I've got my facts, you've got your facts. Uh, there are alternative facts, and basically everybody can just invent the truth as they as they want. Uh, clearly, that's false, and it's uh, massively destructive. Uh, the more people subscribe to that view. I was indeed drifting toward the alt-right. Let's yeah. uh, pick that up. I'm uh, reading an article here. Um, or let me read the headline. This is from Vox.com. The alt-right is drunk on bad readings of Nietzsche. The Nazis were too. Um, so this, Great title. Yeah. It gets us into, uh, and you, you've written a book on Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I want to get your, your thoughts on this. First of all, um, the alt-right, neo-Nazis. Yeah. And the, this article uh, quotes uh, Richard Spencer, who's right. become kind of an icon of the, of the uh, you know, the white supremacist uh, movement. He's famously sort of um, 
cleaned up the image or tries to clean up the image. He's buttoned down, um, but he holds these ideas, which, uh, you know, most people should hold as repugnant. I I would venture to say, hopefully I'm not straying too far out by saying (laughs) that. Um, And uh, Richard Spencer says reading Nietzsche was life-changing for him. Yeah, and there are so many people that say that, and I guess I'd, I'd, I would say that there are kind of three levels for understanding Nietzsche. The, the, Nietzsche, first of all, is a fantastic writer. I mean, he's, he's liquid dynamite. Uh, he's just so gripping and fantastic, and he'll make these claims that are just startling and direct and powerful. Uh, he, you know, of course, he made the claim that God is dead, and he said the last Christian died on the cross, and he has all of these incredible, powerful statements. And so if you're uh, uh, the young male itching for a fight, you might hear a lot of uh, of uh, words in Nietzsche that that arm you and get you incited and make you ready to lead the revolution, that sort of thing. And so uh, Nietzsche often appeals to exactly that crowd, people looking for a fight, and you can find passages in Nietzsche that will support nearly any kind of cause you want to go for. Uh, and there's a long story to be told about how Nietzsche got sort of uh, packaged and sold to the Nazis. Um, it was a, a distortion of his work. And then that's the, the second level of understanding Nietzsche is realizing that even though he has all of these kind of robust uh, muscular metaphors and so on, he's really talking about a philosophical development, a spiritual development. When he's asked to point out heroes, he points out people like Shakespeare, uh, Goethe, Dante, and so on, people that have gone through an intense kind of spiritual struggle and have resulted with some kind of beautiful artistic achievement Mm. in in the end. Um, And... uh, so Nietzsche was certainly against, in his own day, uh, German nationalism, anti-Semitism. He was basically against what he regarded as lazy white culture uh, in Germany at the time and trying to give voice to many, many other sorts of people mm-hmm. and many different views. Maybe we could expand on that. How, how, how was Nietzsche packaged mm-hmm. and sold to the, to the Nazis? I'm, yeah. I imagine there's a kind of a direct line to the neo-Nazis. But... Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, because the, the Nazi spin gave the the alt-right sort of the Nietzsche that they might have wanted, right, I suppose. Uh, the basic thing is that Nietzsche died pretty well. He, he had a mental collapse and lived in sort of obscurity. He was not a famous guy in his own day by any means. Uh, his sister, uh, in an interest uh, to kind of make her brother more known and more popular and, and uh, better thought of, uh, led a major kind of publication of his works that included a lot of uh, uh, revision of what he had written and uh, uh, dropping out parts and taking stuff out of context and so on. And in, you know, she sold it to, you might say, the most popular movement on the on the block, which was German nationalism and the early seeds of, of the anti-Semitic movement that led to the Nazis. Um, and so uh, she packaged and sold him to to the Nazis. And uh, I'd like to tell my students that I don't think that there's a speedometer uh that could measure how fast Nietzsche would be spinning in his grave mm. to see that he's become the party philosopher of Nazis and anti-Semites. Mm. Just exactly what he didn't want to have happen. Quoting from this Vox article, um, Richard Spencer, who's apparently an about atheist, um, said that um, Christianity is false, but, quote, it bound together the civilizations of Europe. Right, and I don't know how they had, I don't know how he would connect that to, to Nietzsche. I don't know if yeah, there's a foundation there. He's probably got Nietzsche right. I mean, in the sense that uh, Nietzsche, of course, was also an atheist, uh, regarded uh, both Judaism and Christianity as a, as a huge uh, mistake perpetrated upon mankind. Although he would say we should be thankful to Christianity because we learn from our mistakes, and since that was such a massively big mistake, we can learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to downplay Nietzsche. There's a lot of radical stuff in there, mm-hmm. uh, even for today. Um, uh, th- on that score, I think the alt-right probably has Nietzsche about right. Mm. And, and they have him right at a general level, too. Nietzsche always urges people to rebel against the prevailing ideologies of their age. Mm. And so if you think of uh, identity politics as something like a prevailing ideology of the age, then the alt-right has, has gotten something right in the Nietzschean flavor of rebelling against what's prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always, um, I guess I've had this conception of white supremacists as uh, Christian. You know, they're right. anti-Catholic, but but uh, mm-hmm. generally Christian. But yeah. I, I, 
I didn't know Spencer was an atheist. I, I suppose that the key is anti-Semitism, um, superiority of the white race. Right, right, right. Um, I wonder um, ab- about um, moral relativism. That's another thing that the strand that they, the, the, the alt-right, the white supremacists, seem to try to be taking from Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. Um, boy, <laughs> mm. um, it's, it's uh, if I step aside from Nietzsche for a moment, just given the work in cognitive science and evolutionary biology, um, it's, uh, it's pr- becoming easier and easier to see the foundations of what our moral beliefs become, right? Some of it is just a matter of what society you're born into. You might think of like, this isn't exactly morality, but table manners, obviously that's going to be determined by what culture you're raised in, what time, and so on. Uh, and then there are all sorts of biological and evolutionary factors as well that go into the making of morality. So um, it's becoming harder and harder to, I would say, this is my own view, I suppose, to hang moral values upon some sort of s- a hook in the sky, right, That where it's you know given directly from the foundation of being or God or something like that. And so uh, morality is at least naturally conditioned, if not fully uh, relativized. So it it grows up out of nature and out of human experience and the human origins and so on. Uh, How do you know how morality came about and at the same time take morality seriously? That becomes, I think, the huge question now, especially when we, through genetic engineering, reach the point where we can change what human nature is. We can change our programming in a way. And so if there's any kind of moral attitudes that are built into our code, we can revise that code. And what morality do we turn to in order to figure out what comes next? And that's where I think uh, we need just more discussion, more mutual understanding, and a more thoughtful approach than anything that is being provided, certainly by the alt-right uh, and and probably by the alt-left as well. Hmm. Again, you know, sort of separating this out from the alt-right and... Uh and perhaps from from Nietzsche uh, leads us uh, could lead us let's mm-hmm. let's let it lead us to a, <laughs> to a discussion. We're, we're makers of our own destiny, <laughs> Tom. Um, to, to uh, truth, yes, truth, right. truth with a capital T. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so I, you know, uh, you know, we could do a moderate dive into this. So yeah. we take the whole hour. I, to, uh, well, I do want to recommend. This there's this is something that I'm sorry. Uh, listeners should should be aware of. There's going to be a series of panel discussions on the campus at Utah State on uh, truth, and there's I think going to be five different panel discussions on different aspects of truth, different ways that truth is being appropriated and used as a concept, uh, perhaps denigrated, you know, with the notion of alternative facts and so on. And so there's going to be just a very open explanation, uh, exploration of truth. And, and I think if you watch uh, websites and newspapers, you'll see advertisements about these panel discussions. Um, but there, uh, there certainly is the, uh, a common attitude that, you know, uh, Truth is a matter of your own uh, your own perspective, your own bias, and so on. Um, but of course, we do face the uncomfortable fact of facts, right? These these stubborn things that seem to stick up in the world, and there's no way getting around them. And so, uh, uh, a moderate view that I think uh, uh, doesn't get a lot of attention just because we're in an age that focuses on extremes. Uh, a moderate view is that yes, you've got facts, right? But it's a matter of interpreting them correctly. And not and all, not all interpretations go, uh, but some interpretations are better than others. But even if you uh, if you get to the best interpretations, you might come to situations where there's a couple of competing uh, interpretations. Some have benefits and costs, and others have different benefits and costs. And uh, trying to navigate your way uh, to the correct theory when you just have a kind of a smaller domain of facts to work from is a v- extremely interesting process. Mm-hmm. There again, you get into education. You know, sure, education. Larger what, pool of facts to work from, yes. larger framework. Yeah, what to do with an incomplete set of data. That's mm-hmm. kind of the biggest question that I think most humans face all the time, mm-hmm. e- either in life or in workplace. You just don't always have enough information uh, to go with, and so you've got to make the best guess you can. Before we go to a break, um, I want to uh, link this to a discussion we had last week about uh, about Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And um, this idea of marketplace of ideas, right? And uh, as a philosopher, I'm sure you have some thoughts on on this. Uh, yeah. How how do you counteract repugnant ideas like those 
right. on display being marched right uh, in support of by the by the white supremacists. Yeah. So as as a good philosopher, I'll just try to answer your question and with a further question, which is uh, that uh, I mean, obviously, having an open marketplace of ideas where you can explore all these different opinions in a civil, c- controlled sort of manner. That's a good ideal to shoot for, and a democracy is not going to work unless you have a well-functioning marketplace of ideas. But what do you do when the topic comes up, something like, uh, are women naturally inferior to men in computer programming, right? Or are, uh, I'm thinking of the Google memo, uh, or are, are African Americans naturally inferior to white people, right? Uh, and with some of those questions, I can really understand people who say, that's not up for discussion, Right. That we're past that. We don't need don't put me in a situation where I need to argue that uh, racial bias is not justified. Right. Uh, It's not even up for discussion anymore. So I can understand uh, people wanting, you might say, to shut down neighborhoods of the marketplace of ideas when those questions really have been settled. Right. And just raising them is an affront to somebody's dignity as, as a human being. So what do you do? How do you figure out what neighborhoods of the marketplace of ideas to shut down and say, we're past that, right? We don't need to argue about that anymore. And which ones do we turn to and say, no, we should have open discussion about that? How do you do that without betraying the fundamental idea of a marketplace of ideas? I don't I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a um, kind of a ray of hope here in one of your uh, posts on Hinamaniac.com. Mm-hmm. By the way, we're talking with Charlie Heneman, a philosophy professor at Utah State University. A lot of interesting stuff at Um You say one of the answers to why do philosophy, it helps you get Reddit points. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you, you take us to a subreddit called Change My View, yes. which I found quite helpful. Yes. this I didn't know about this until a student pointed it out to me. And uh, it's, I think, the, the crown jewel of Reddit. I mean, there's a lot of junk on Reddit. Um, it, it's, a, it's, I think, in the top five of uh, visited internet sites or something. So it's, it's massive. And there's something there for really everyone. Um, but this is a particularly great subreddit called Change My View. And the whole the, the gimmick, I suppose, is this. Somebody puts down as a claim something that they think is true. And then everybody kind of tries to change their view on it, providing arguments and evidence against it. Um, and there are very strict rules on the subreddit that you can't get into name calling. You can't just get into a, a back and forth of, of uh, nasty insults and so on. You've got to stay focused and you've got to stay respectful and you've got to keep to the facts and the theories and the, and the argument and so on. So it's a great model of what should happen, right? I mean, if I come across this view that I have, uh, I might think democracy is a bad idea, right? And I can put that down on change my view and I can receive – intelligent, reasoned criticisms of that view. And if, uh, if somebody manages to change my view, I award them on this subreddit a delta, which is sort of a meaningless little trophy. It's like a Reddit point or something like that. Um, but it encourages uh, people to not just dig in and defend their view, but if they hear a very good reason to reject that particular view, they change their mind. They change their view. What a marvelous idea. That's, mm-hmm. I think, a great example of, of uh, positive things that the Internet can be doing. So this is a kind of a little sub space right on, right. on, the, on the whole oh, the marketplace tiny whole, tiny whole, little neighborhood tiny of rational neighborhood it gives us a little ray of hope how would we <laughs> transfer some of those principles mm. to the to the larger yeah rancorous one, one debate right one bit of advice that i give especially if you find yourself getting involved in a comment thread on some article or something like that is to try early on if you end up arguing with somebody sort out what's at stake uh, in this person's mind, right? Why are they pushing so hard to deny global warming or whatever it is? What's what's at stake? Why are they so invested in this issue? And the more that you try to understand what's motivating the other person, if you can, right? That's that's the other problem. If you can uh, get that information, then suddenly it's not two cardboard cutouts yelling back and forth, but three-dimensional human beings with concerns and worries. Hmm. And that's at least a step in the right direction towards recognizing the humanity in the other person. 
We have with us Charlie Heneman, philosophy professor at uh, Utah State University, and uh, interesting discussion uh, uh, continues here. We are opening the phone lines now. We'll take a break soon, but do we want to get in a call here? Phone li- phone number you can call as well as 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can get a comment or question through to us as well to join this discussion. Hope that you will at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us John from Moab. John, glad you called. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Um, something your your guest said caught my attention and actually got me a call in. And it was, um, I, I, without being specific, he was talking about the alt-right and the alt-left. Mm-hmm. Well, there is no alt-left. Yeah, that's, I, I that's, think I mentioned the nonsense. alt-left. That's yeah. um, uh, Alt-right, they have Nazi flags, they do Hitler salutes, they love Mussolini. They want fascism here in the United States. If we had an alt-left, they'd be demanding whatever, Marxism, Leninism, and communism, and they would demand that the government be um, changed to a communist government. I didn't see any of that, and I've never seen any of that. I'm 66 years old, and I've never seen any of that. And I'm looking at my computer right now at an Associated Press article where the alt-right published a photo recently of a man beating a cop with a club. Turns out it's uh, happened in Greece, and, it, and the photo was taken in 2009. And it was a doctored photo that's been circulating and claim it's Charlottesville. Um, I, I'm actually just embarrassed that people, that radio commentators are not calling out the, the uh, people they're interviewing and saying, wait a minute, what alt-left. I mean, demanding peace or clean drinking water doesn't make you alt-left, does it? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Thanks, John, for that. And I'll, I'll have to uh, I'll have to clarify that I think I was the one who uttered that phrase. And in my mind, it was uh, I was uh, channeling President Trump, who and I completely agree with you, uh, uh, John. Yeah. That there there really is no there is no alt-left. This is something that President Trump said. Well, right, and John, I think that's that's right. When you compare I mean, the alt right tactics, right, with uh, what you might, I mean, if you compare that with what I guess I had in mind, at least when I was thinking about the alt-left, it's really no comparison. You're exactly right that we, we don't have, uh, you know, fervid communists or socialists storming the barricades and so on. Uh, maybe we should. I don't, uh, I guess I better dissociate myself from that, but mm-hmm. but maybe we should. Um, but uh, there, there are plenty on the left that you might say, uh, adopt talking points without doing thorough research. Now, is there a huge difference between adopting uh, talking points without doing thorough research and, you know, driving cars into crowds of people and so on? Yes, obviously there is, and I think think you're exactly right about that. Um, So um, just to follow up to that, uh, Charlie, um, it's uh, the... Oh, I've lost my train of thought. Let's oh. <laughs> let's go to break, and I'll recapture I, I, my train of thought. I have that effect on people. I'm picturing you students kind of kind of drifting <laughs> drifting off. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll recapture that during the during the break. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to maybe drive this to uh, some some. Uh, more fun topics. Um, if I teleport from Mars, does the original me get destroyed? This is an article for, by Charlie Heneman in uh, Eon. Um, also, want to get into the philosophy of Minecraft and Skyrim mm-hmm. and uh, other topics. We'll uh, stay on topics we've been on. If you would like, with your question or comment, to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Appreciate John's call. You can call as well. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra's 2017-2018 to season with six concerts in the USU Danes Concert Hall under the direction of Dr. Craig Jessup. Season tickets available online at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. On the next Radio Lab. We now know who paid $350,000 to kill an endangered black rhino in Namibia. We are at war. Two sides fight over one rhino. Killing wild animals so that they can be looked after. Utterly ridiculous. And a critical question. How do we really value this animal's survival on Earth? That's in the next Radio Lab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio.
Cash Art's 2017 to 2018 National Touring Season, offering season tickets beginning August 15th for shows including Earth's Dinosaur Zoo Live, One Man Star Wars Trilogy, and Bar J Wrangler's Christmas. Information at cashearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I have with me uh, Charlie Heeneman. He's a philosophy professor at Utah State University. Uh, he is author of several books and essays on the history of philosophy, as well as some uh, fun stuff, uh, such as How to Play the Game, A Philosopher Plays Minecraft. Um, and he's author of uh, several uh, e-books, uh, chapbooks, uh, shorter books on Amazon, uh, called, uh, some of these are Inventing Justice, World as Idea, Doubts to View from Eternity, and uh, Slutterdikes, Spears, yeah. is that how you pronounce that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me briefly about that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, so there's a contemporary German philosopher named uh, Peter Sloterdijk, and he's uh, fairly famous in Germany because he's uh, he has been a host of a, um, a TV show and uh, in which a bunch of very heady intellectual ideas are discussed. And so he's written this kind of massive trilogy called Spheres, um, and it's a vision of what human history has been and what it is now and and what our futures may hold. And it's it's I find it very hard. I'm still grappling with it uh, and very find it very hard to provide a quick summary. But I think uh, the main point that he's driving at is that humans have always been about uh, living in small communities. Uh, he calls them spheres, right? A, a place of a shared interior. And he traces that through architecture and art and philosophy and literature throughout the ages and then explores what the future might be when, say, uh, nations fall apart and we're left with uh, the communities that we have, the uh, friendships and families that we've formed with disparate people around the globe. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's a, what I find is it's a kind of a refreshing, anti-pessimistic view of what the human uh, future might hold. Mm. Interesting, interesting. I just wanted to uh, wrap up our discussion uh, previously on uh, on the alt-right, mm-hmm. and we'll take uh, John's point, there is no alt-left, um, mm-hmm. the alt-right. Uh, and I want to uh, talk about President Trump's seeming yeah. um, equivalency, he, equating the, the, uh, the, the white supremacists Right, and uh, those who were counter uh, demonstrating, yeah, um, and I wanted to connect that up with his and and, and the rights, right. uh, but President Trump seems to uh, really uh, think that we shouldn't have political correctness. We've gone too far with political correctness, and he couches a lot of this in "I'm just battling this this over conformity that we've had with political correctness." Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, and I'm certainly no expert on this matter, but my sense is that a lot of uh, Trump's power base is uh, disenfranchised uh, white people. Right. People that feel like anyway that they're uh, they've lost jobs, they've lost income. And uh, rather than direct the blame at CEOs who have moved manufacturing plants overseas, uh, they direct blame at brown and black people and women. Right. People who are not white males. And say, oh, you're taking my jobs away from me, and so on. And it's it's a, a very old kind of human response to uh, to blame the immigrants, to blame the the uh, um, the person who's different from you um, for the misery that you're encountering. Uh, and he's riding that wave and encouraging hatred along the way. I have to say, and so I, I would take it that his uh, you know uh, condemning both sides sort of remark was a way of trying to have it both ways, preserve that. Uh, that frustrated base of power that he has, uh, but also do something that was quasi-presidential sounding. Hmm. I wonder what you would say about, we talked a little bit earlier about this, and you, you posed the question to which you didn't have the uh, the answer, um, of what parts of the marketplace do you shut down and, and, uh, and say, <laughs> we've decided that as a society, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it seems like President Trump, his supporters are trying to reopen some of those marketplaces. Right. And and a great example, I think, recently, and this uh, maybe this moves away from uh, Trump exactly, but this Google memo that came out that, uh, at least according to popular reports, was a, a claim that women are not as good at computer engineering as men are. Actually, if you read the memo, it's much more nuanced than that. Uh, and the person who wrote it, had, I think, has a PhD from, in evolutionary biology uh, from Harvard. So certainly knew about uh, documented cases of differences among the sexes and so on. Um, and when you read the memo, you real, it, 
it by itself anyway, it's a it's a kind of a great example of dispassionate rational consideration of how you might create a workplace that takes into account gender differences and provides uh, uh, the opportunity for a flourishing career for everybody. So it wasn't just a simple claim, women are no good at computer engineering. It's much more nuanced. But it gets more complicated when you think about the circumstance into which that memo arrived, right, where uh, women and minorities are greatly underrepresented at Google, certainly feel the oppression, I would say, at least in, in subtle ways, uh, in workaday lives. And so in that context, when you have a memo that comes in that says, hey, maybe men are better at programming than women, or at least has that as, as a kind of subtext or some kind of consequence of the thought, well, that, that is a bit of a Molotov cocktail being thrown into a, a dangerous situation. So uh, the more that I read about the Google memo, the more it got me thinking about marketplaces of ideas and exchanging ideas, exchanging arguments, but at the same time trying to be sensitive to the context and to the lived experiences of the people that you're directing your memos to and so on. It gets very complicated. Mm. Uh, this civility business is not for babies. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of counterintuitive, right? Uh, it's, uh, but I guess I take your point, it's easier to throw yeah. Molotov cocktails. Well, that and it's also Har easy, harder it, to be empathetic. And it's easier to have a kind of dispassionate, cool, level-headed discussion if you're not somebody who's facing oppression on a daily basis, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if, if you are, then you just kind of want to uh, at least get some security and stability and equality and fair treatment. And, and then maybe, you know, we can have this dispassionate discussion of theoretical uh, entities and so on. Um, but, you know, social justice has to come first. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a mess. I, I wish I had better answers yeah. to it. So I guess one, one place where I could uh, start to uh, try to apply your, mm -hmm. your let's call it Heinemann's uh, principle here. Oh, good heavens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I tend to roll my eyes and mm. I'll, I'll come clean at, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, white man's victimization. But if there's right. a, there's a movement now, you know, Right. Hey, we we're the we're the victims. Yeah. yeah. Now, and and this is seeking to uh, have an amnesty, to disconnect us from our past. You know, and 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 these people who want white people's victimization want to want to tell us, hey, or long last, can we just stop yeah. talking about slavery? Long last, can we? Right, you know, give an amnesty about the civil rights, the Jim Crow, and 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 all that. Sure. All that all that stuff. I guess yeah. uh, I should try to try to empathize with uh, the lived experiences of of some of these people. Well, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, the the uh, people, whoever they are, uh, white, brown, black, male, female, uh, when they're feeling uh, oppressed, when they're feeling like they've been shafted in some way, let's try to figure out what it is, what's really happened, and and whether they really have been right, and who the real enemy is, what the real agents are, and so on. Um, it, uh, I agree with you. It's hard to uh, take seriously the claims that, that white people are being systematically oppressed when all the statistics still point to the fact that there's a lot of institutional racism, particularly in the U.S., and sexism as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, but there again, you, those, are, those are great big numbers, right? And you still have individual cases where somebody might uh, have, have gotten the short end of the stick. Um, and so there, there again, it's good to know where the person's coming from, what experience they've really had, whether they really have experienced uh, some sort of oppression, or whether this is something that's just sort of hype they're getting from the Internet somewhere. Mm. Let's take another break, and, and when we come back, uh, we'll channel Monty Python uh, now for something <laughs> completely different, and uh, we'll have some fun. We'll jump into this article, If I Teleport from Mars, Does the Original Me Get Destroyed? We'll talk about Minecraft and uh, other Fun things with philosopher Charlie Heenan. More following this break. On the next on being, Nikki Giovanni, a revolutionary poet during the civil rights movement, now an adored teacher to a new generation. If it's one thing that I definitely enjoy, it's my eight o'clock class. They come to me eight a.m. They come to me from their dreams, and I come to them from mine. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Join us Sunday night at 5 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Ask Me Another, we're joined by former U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove 
And before she was winning Pulitzer Prizes and collecting honorary degrees, she was naming characters in her own comic books. Well, we had our typical superheroes, Jet Boy, Jet Girl, and their dog, Jet Zumino. <laughs> Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour with philosopher Charlie Heineman. He's professor of philosophy at Utah State University, author of uh, several books and essays on the history of philosophy, uh, is, uh, author of some uh, e-books, some shorter uh, chat books on the Internet. You can get those for 99 cents on Amazon. Uh, such titles as Inventing Justice, World as Idea, Doubts to View from Eternity, and uh, other books. And uh, we are uh, we have another 10 minutes with uh, Charlie Heineman uh, today. You can join this conversation at 800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Charlie, let me just read the first art, uh, paragraph of your article, recent article in uh, E.ON. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title is, If I Teleport from Mars, Does the Original Me Get Destroyed? I'm stranded on Mars, you say. The fuel tanks on my return vessel ruptured, and no rescue team can possibly reach me before I run out of food. And unlike Matt Damon, I have no potatoes. Luckily, my ship features a teleporter. It is an advancement of gadgetry, to be sure, but the underlying idea is simplicity itself. The machine scans my body and produces an amazingly detailed blueprint, a clear picture of each cell and neuron. That blueprint file is then beamed back to Earth, where a new me is constructed using raw materials available at the destination site. All I have to do is step in, close my eyes, press the red button. But there's a complication. A toggle switch allows me to decide whether the old me on Mars is preserved or destroyed after I teleport back home. It's this decision that's causing me to hesitate. Uh, It's this kind of... uh, area of philosophy, which I'm sure captures the interest of your students. Sure, yeah, yeah the, the the metaphysics end, or mm-hmm. metaphysics and epistemology, uh, and it's it's a that's a great old thought experiment. That's not my original one by any means. It goes back really to the 18th century. Uh, this idea of duplicating a person and where the real person ends up being. And the interesting thing with the teleporter example is that uh, most students uh, accept the kind of initial Star Trek version of the story. I walk into a teleporter, the information gets beamed to another place, I'm reconstituted there, and I survive the trip, right? But when you add that complication, that what what if the old me at the old you know uh, uh, departure spot doesn't get destroyed, then where would I be? And then everybody's intuition sort of shift. Well, then I would still be where I was on Mars, right? And then there'd be some kind of new me, some other person that was a lot like me walking around on Earth. Um, but then what is it that makes me me if it's not the organization of my neurons and the cells and the way that my body is structured? Um, if it's the matter that matters, the particular atoms and so on, well, then do I become a new person every seven years when my cells are replaced and that sort of thing? Um, do I become a new person if I were to have some sort of uh, brain surgery that replaced some chunk of my brain with, uh, let's say, a silicon equivalent or something like that? Um, and so these questions about what makes a person a person, is, is those questions are dramatized by these kind of sci-fi examples. Mm. Let's talk about Minecraft. Yeah. You, you wrote a, one of these uh, short books on the philosophy mm-hmm. of uh, Minecraft. Tell us first about Minecraft for those who yeah. haven't played it. So Minecraft is a wonderful, it's called a sandbox game. Uh, and uh, there's various ways in which you can play it. But kind of the most obvious way to play it is to, you enter into this kind of virtual world and you can build stuff. You can chop down wood, you can get rock, you can uh, and it get, you know, Uh, make fences and houses and doors and windows. And so you can build stuff and you just need to find a shelter at night when the zombies and skeletons come out. Um, And it's a marvelous, marvelously tranquil. if, If you have a stressful day, go home and play Minecraft and everything is beautiful and clear and orderly and peaceful. And it's a great kind of relaxing uh, sort of game without that kind of pressure to get the points or kill the boss or whatever it is uh, that many other games have. Uh, and so I started to think about, well, suppose you were a conscious person in Minecraft. Suppose that you were in the Minecraft world. What sort of metaphysics would you develop? Because it, it's a different world. It's it's a very blocky world. There's uh, Everything seems to come in a, about a meter square block. Um, and the laws of nature aren't quite the same, and there's a certain amount of what we would call magic from our point of view in it. So what would be your metaphysics if you lived in the Minecraft world? That was the question that got me going and then eventually uh, became that book. Hmm. Yeah, Interesting. 
Now, I've never heard of the, this game, Skyrim. Yeah. What, what, tell us about that. Yeah, so Skyrim is, is uh, more violent of a game. You have to run around and kill monsters and bad guys and so on. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a bit more uh, realistic in, in its graphic presentation, right? People look like people and so on instead of blockheaded characters. Um, and there are characters that you come across called non-playable characters. They're just sort of, you might say, bit parts in the story. The, the guy who's serving ale at the tavern or the captain of the guard or something like that. And you can't play as those characters, and their uh, repertoire is uh, very limited. They usually have, like, say, a dozen stock lines that they can uh, say. Um, so uh, the thought there was, um, what if one of these non-playable characters gradually started uh, growing in consciousness, growing in greater awareness, questioning their own being? What would that look like from the outside as, as you know, you, the player? And what would that be like from the inside of a non-playable character suddenly becoming a character, a conscious character, a conscious being? So it's in some ways the same kind of uh, strategy as the book on Minecraft, uh, asking about consciousness and virtual characters. Uh, Skyrim presents, though, just some different opportunities because it's a very different kind of game. Hmm. Hmm. Where my mind went was um, how many of us today with uh, today's virtual world are non-playing characters that's yeah that's the great existential <laughs> dimension of this i mean how often do you find yourself on autopilot saying stock things how you doing fine how are you fine yeah. right these stock kinds of scripts uh that make the day go smoother but you're you're playing your role in a bigger sort of game a bigger kind of system uh without a lot of self-consciousness in it and so yeah that is the underlying conceit mm -hmm. right about whether i might be a non-playable character and it is a sliding scale, I, I, you know, I, right. as I conceive it, if you're too conscious in every moment, uh, it's it hard to drive your car harder, hard you know. To, exactly, yeah. On so the you, other hand, you don't want to be totally unplugged. Right, uh, yeah. One of the things that I say in that little essay is that if you want to see who you really are as a character, ask somebody else to watch you. Uh, and get that outside perspective. And it may turn out that you're a very different person from the, the story that you tell yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that's an interesting, the stories we tell ourselves. That's, yes. That's a whole part of our self-conception. It is, it is. And uh, there are some philosophers who say that's how you get a meaningful life, is you kind of craft a story in which you're the main character. You, you create the terms in which uh, you should understand your life. And they often enlist Nietzsche as, as a, a great proponent of that view. Mm. There's another philosopher, though, that I should mention, Galen Strawson, who says, well, yes, some people are like that. Some people do conceive their lives as great big stories in which they're the main characters. Other people, though, just naturally don't go that way. They think of themselves as episodic, mm -hmm. that I'm in this little situation now and I'll be in a different situation later and there's no kind of grand continuous thread that pulls it all together. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it's just a matter of individual temperament, that some people are big story people and other people are little episode people. But aren't we supposed to be, you know, the... the former conception is we're heroes. We at least should be right. the hero of our own story, right? Right. But right. I guess in an episodic, uh, you, I guess you don't yeah. have to be. Yeah, and Strawson points out convincingly that that can lead to a lot of self-deception, right? When you're trying to fit all of your life into some great big story, some great big narrative, there's a lot of stuff you'll have to ignore and a lot of stuff you might have to just kind of make up to make for the good story. And so you might end up with a very distorted view of who you are and what your life is about. Mm. We have an email that's coming from uh, Mon Gregory. Mon says, thank you for this fascinating discussion. I work in philosophy for children, mm. a global movement that sees children as capable of asking and discussing their own philosophical questions. Philosophy has been a regular high school subject in many uh, ca uh, countries for centuries. In the U.S., high, uh, high school philosophy is still a rarity, mm. but there is an organization Plato, Philosophy Learning and Teaching Organization that networks philosophers and teachers bringing philosophy to elementary schools through uh, high schools. The movement of elementary school philosophy began at Montclair State University, where I teach, uh, in 1972. Anyone interested in having philosophical dialogues with children and teenagers might Google philosophy for children. Sounds fascinating. Excellent, excellent. There's a fantastic book, older book, uh, called Philosophy and the Young Child by Gareth Matthews, where... Uh, you have these wonderful questions that kids raise um, because basically these wonderful questions haven't been beaten out of them yet, right? Questions like a little kid says, uh, well, 
uh, is God everywhere? And mother says, yes. And the kid says, so if I, if I walk into the kitchen, do I push some of God out into the living room? Uh, you know, great questions that sort of call into question the presuppositions we have about bodies and space and what everywhere means and what it would be for a being to be everywhere and so on. Um, and one of my favorite definitions of philosophy is that philosophy takes questions that occur naturally to children and uh, treats them with methods that come naturally to lawyers. Uh, <laughs> and so ki- kids are able to raise great sorts of questions that we would never think of raising because we have all these presuppositions we carry with us and they haven't uh, taken them on board yet. It, it seems, uh, this is this is my conception of it, that the philosophy, like some other subjects, is uh, children are sort of bored out of it in K through 12 because of the way it's taught. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it is just a matter of Plato thought this, Aristotle thought that, that's pretty boring. But uh, but as I'm sure the uh, the person who wrote in is well aware, there are great ways to make philosophy interesting. And that's, that's um, I, I guess, an excellent point. If we want to have kids who are great citizens and good at solving problems, and I assume that's what we would love to have, then just teaching them STEM disciplines is not really enough. That's great. I have nothing against the STEM disciplines at all. That's fantastic. But you've got to teach people flexibility of mind, creativity, able uh, an ability to uh, generate new hypotheses when confronted with a puzzling situation. And there, I would think something like philosophy would be absolutely crucial to developing the sorts of uh, people that we want to have as citizens. Hmm. Just have uh, about a minute left, um, and I want to end on a, uh, a hopeful note. You have a post here, uh, henomaniac.com, the age of moonshot ideals, question <laughs> <Yeah>. mark. <laughs> yeah. So I have, I mean, there's a lot of ex- wonderful, exciting stuff happening, with, especially stuff focused around Elon Musk with SpaceX and all the incredible sorts of ideas that he's uh, coming out with and, and making good on. Um, and I, I have to say sort of temperamentally, I tend to be more of an Eeyore, uh, more pessimistic, and I think, oh, things are just going to go down the tubes and get worse and worse and worse and worse. Obviously, I could be wrong, right? And uh, it could be that we're just on the cusp of making a great, new, wonderful world. And uh, I have to admit I'm kind of nervous even saying that because uh, as a cynic, as a pessimist, I should know better and so on. Um, but it's entirely possible that we can be hopeful about our future, and there might even be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy dimension of this. The more that we see ourselves as and civilization as going down the tubes, the more likely it is it will go down the tubes. There's a wonderful foundation uh, headquartered in uh, San Francisco called the Long Now Foundation, and uh, it was started by people who were kind of disappointed that when they asked their kids what will humanity be like a thousand years from now, the kids automatically said, oh, we'll be dead by then. I mean, all humanity will be dead by then. And they thought, what an awful way to live, to think that that, uh, our species is just going to go out in some kind of meaningless uh, self-execution or something like that. So they started to do a kind of creative thing. They they started to build a clock that would last for 10,000 years. And to think about what would be involved with that, how it would be sustainable, uh, operating under its own power for 10,000 years, and and uh, provide a set of instructions for it that any human being would be able to decipher, right, without knowing English or Spanish or whatever. Um, and so uh, they th- started just to think about life on that order, a 10,000-year magnitude, right, rather than a decade magnitude or something like that. It's a wonderful, hopeful project. That's the Long Now Foundation. The Long Now Foundation. And you can read a lot of interesting things at henemaniac.com. Charlie Heneman is professor of philosophy at Utah State University. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks, Tom. It's always a delight. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.